let's think together about this text now. And as we do that, I just want to pray. Lord God, speak to us. Uh, help us to listen well and to love well and to serve well as a result of what we hear. Amen. So, uh, hey, we're starting a series looking at the Gospel of Mark. And you go, yay, that's so exciting. It really is. It's an amazing Gospel. And the whole of the Gospel of Mark, and we'll talk in a moment about what a Gospel is, but the whole of this book seeks to answer this question, who is Jesus? Now, if you're religious, you might go, well, obviously, that's a very important question. But, but why is it so important? And why, why does it matter who we think Jesus is? Well, it matters at a few levels. Uh, it matters because we've got to figure out if we're going to take what Jesus says about life seriously or not. So, you know, he makes some outrageous claims. So on what basis does he make those claims? Um, Are they true? Uh, We need to understand who Jesus is because, listen, we're always being formed and informed and shaped by ideas that come to us from all sorts of sources in the world, right? So we're shaped by what our friends think. We're shaped by the sort of political philosophy that, that we indwell. And what we've got to figure out is, in all the voices that speak to us about how we should live, which voice, is there any voice that should be loudest? Who should we pay the closest attention to? Right? Now, uh, you know, should it be the neo-Marxist liberal arts colleges who shape the left wing of our society? Should we listen to them? Should we listen to the voices of the markets that say, you know, and and libertarian philosophy that says, what will really make you free is unlimited choice exercised in a marketplace of ever-expanding goods and services that can meet your every need? Are those the voices we should listen to? Should we listen to the voices that say, there is no truth. It's all really just about what you feel and think and what matters uh, is that is that nobody is ever excluded and nobody ever makes any ultimate truth claims, apart from, of course, the ultimate truth claim that there is no such thing as an ultimate truth claim. It's a very powerful sort of undercurrents and voices that shape us, right? And it's imp- so, so in the midst of all those voices, are we going to listen to the voice of Jesus? <laughs> and the only reason we are... And the only reason we're going to give weight to the voice of Jesus is when we come to a satisfactory answer about, to this question, well, who is he? Why should I? And because depending on the answer you give to who he is, you're going to give an answer to, well, why should I listen to him? Why should I bother? I find it interesting in some of the intellectual circles I, I read in and and engage with, um, there's a big resurgence in the interest in Stoicism, uh, and Epictetus, and, uh, and these Greek philosophers providing wisdom into our world. And I find it very interesting that, that there's a whole movement in sort of contemporary culture to, to reclaim and re-look at and re-listen to these classical Greek thinkers. Like, oh, that's awesome, right? But why listen to Epictetus? And, and I'm, actually, I was thinking this morning over breakfast as I read and participated in some of these discussion forums, I thought, I'm going to ask them, well, why wouldn't you listen to Jesus? Because he's had a pretty big influence in the world, hasn't he, uh, over 2,000 years? And so, um, why? who is Jesus? Let's think about that. has profound personal implications as well, because if Jesus is who he said he is, it changes everything. 
And if Jesus isn't who he said he is, then that's also really important to know because we should just give up on this whole Christian business and do something else. Follow Epictetus, become a neo-Marxist, embrace libertarian, uh, libertarian philosophy of just exercising your free will at all costs, trample over everybody you want to ensure the propagation of your genetic material in a neo-Darwinian, brutal world. I mean, just, just for, you know. So it matters, right? Really matters. I see you all nodding. Okay, well, the beautiful thing about Christianity is we're not left to guess about who Jesus is. God has revealed to us who Jesus is, and he does it through uh, the texts of Scripture, which are collections of stories specifically about who Jesus is. So, um, this is what the Gospel of Mark says, and uh, it's, it's great. This is like philosophy of religion and religion and life for dummies. Who is Jesus? No doubt about it in Mark's gospel. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. So yippee, the Messiah. This is this introduction to the whole book. And then it says, well, guess who he is? Son of God. Actually, what you really need to know is that that phrase is actually a, an attribution of divinity to Jesus. So really, Mark's gospel is saying right at the start, uh, you know what? We're gonna, this is a book that's going to tell you the story about Jesus, who is God. And so there we go. That's it. That's the answer to the question, right? Easy. In fact, it's very, cl- it's very simple. Uh, Mark's, very clever. Mark's gospel repeats this phrase at three key moments through the book, in the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. So who is Jesus? He's God. Really? That's a big claim, isn't it? That's a huge claim. It's a massive claim. So, obvious question to ask then is, how can we trust this writing, this document, when it makes such an outrageous claim? Because if, for example, I stood here this morning and I said, well, uh, I've got a bit of paper here. I just found it. It's an amazingly truthful... You know what it says? It says here, Mark is God. And by Mark, I mean me. Would you, would you trust what you found written on that bit of paper? Well, probably not. So why should we trust what this says? Well, here's why I think it's reasonable to trust this. It, we trust this because these documents, and there's four of them in existence in the world, these documents are written public testimonies or witnesses to what people experienced of Jesus. So uh, they're not, it's not historical fiction. It's not mythology. Uh, it's important. The, the claim of, of history is these aren't mythology. These aren't like um, uh, ancient Icelandic sagas that tell the story of the God of Thor, and we all know it's a myth. This is a different kind of literature. This is literature that are accounts of people bearing witness, of giving, sharing that testimony, that first-hand experience of Jesus. A little bit like if you were a court reporter listening to someone, uh, a witness in a case, describing what they'd experienced, their first-hand experience being described, and then you transcribe it and you write down what they've said. Now, you might say, but how do we know they, they accurately reported what people experienced? It's a good question. Think about it this way. Most, pe- most scholars would say um, this, this, 
this particular collection of writings, Mark's Gospel, Mark's uh, Testimony, was, was probably written around AD 65, so within one generation of Jesus living and dying. Now imagine, uh, imagine this, you uh, have been blind your entire life, and you're living in Galilee in first century Israel, and being blind, you are a beggar. You have been blind since birth. You've never seen anything. Uh, life has been miserable and terrible and hard. And then out of nowhere comes this guy, Jesus, and he touches you, and suddenly you can see. Wow. Or imagine uh, you're a leper, which means someone who had a, a, an infectious skin disease. And the function of one of those skin diseases in a, a pre-fungicidal, pre-antibiotic age, uh, those skin diseases meant you were excluded permanently from sort of civilized religious society. You're always on the margins. So your whole life, you'd been on the margins because of this horrible itchy, I mean, I'm starting to scratch as it is, disease, you know. You, you're out there on the margins. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, along comes this guy, Jesus. He touches you. And no one has ever touched you since you developed this disease because that might make them unpure. And suddenly, your disease is gone. Bang, you're right at the center of religious and civilized society, right then and there. Or imagine you're a paralytic. Like, you just can't move any of your limbs. And you're a beggar. And you have no hope in the world. And then, out of the middle of nowhere, Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And guess what happens? You do, and you walk, and you're healed. Now, what do you think those people would have done for the rest of their lives? I mean, those are stories that you can eat out on, aren't they? Like, when we have amazing things happen to us, we tell people, don't we? That's just what we do. You can't, I mean, you know, you know, I've, had a friend who's become a vegan. Apparently, this is an amazing life. You may have a friend such as this, and some of you may be vegan in this community. I know. You have some, has an amazing experience. They can't help but tell everybody all the time. Every Facebook post is the benefits of veganism. So uh, this is my niece, Candace. If you listen to this, we love you. Um, Oliver and I just love trolling her with pictures of bacon and, you know, things like that. When something amazing happens to you, you tell people. Now, thousands of people had amazing encounters with Jesus, and it's entirely reasonable to imagine in the small world of Israel, uh, where people didn't travel very far, they spent their lives just going around going, well, you know, guess what happened to me? I was just sitting there. That's what happens, right? Now, um, it's entirely reasonable to think that these stories became very well known as thousands of people repeated the same kinds of stories about Jesus. There's another reason to think they might be reliable, and that is that, guess what? There were people all around the, the people who were telling these stories who were there at the time who could say to them, eh, no, it didn't happen quite like that. You know, you weren't really blind. You just got something in your eye the day before. Don't, don't exaggerate. Because sometimes, you know, we're prone to exaggerate. But there were people all around them who could verify, who could corroborate, or who could contradict their public testimony, their witness. I'm like, I mean, I, I tell lots of stories of my, my growing up. Uh, the beauty of my great stories about growing up in Africa is none of you are there. And the people who were there are all dead. I could be making it all up. You'd never know, would you? My brother's not on social media. He doesn't listen to these sermons. You have no way of corroborating all the great traumatic things that happened to me that I pepper into my sermons. Do you? 
Not so with these accounts. They were telling them in the villages where they happened, amongst people who were there and saw them. And what happened is these accounts uh, of what Jesus did and who he was, they were drawn together in four books, which present uh, in their four different ways amazingly accurate, historically reliable, personally compelling uh, witness to Jesus. And we're looking at one of them, Mark. So when this gospel says, hey, listen, Jesus is God. And we're gonna, I'm going to show you in this book. I think we need to take that seriously. I think we need to take it seriously. Now, it's a big claim, and you might feel like, oh, the whole God thing I'm not sure about. Uh, and and you might you might really have all kinds of different views of Jesus. You might have come in today thinking Jesus was is a really good bloke, he was a really naughty boy, he was a great mystical teacher, he was a construct of the early church's imagination to help them deal with all sorts of experiences of social exclusion and so forth. Listen, if you're not sure that Jesus was God, you're in really good company. Because one of the things we'll discover when we read Mark's gospel is most of the people who should have known that Jesus was God actually didn't know that. They didn't get it. It takes time. It's okay to take time. It's okay to not get it all at once. In fact, I often think if anyone ever claims to have gotten it all at once, they're really delusional. I just don't think reality works that way. We can have aha moments, but there's so much to understand about Jesus in this claim. It's okay to take your time to learn and to be confused and even to get it wrong. Because <laughs> actually most of the people in this particular account uh, didn't understand what was really going on with Jesus up until the end. In fact, the only people who really understood <laughs> were the people who really shouldn't, namely the demons and the, the kind of the outsiders and the, the, the really unspiritual people. So it's okay. Now, uh, this is what the Bible says. Uh, this is what this story says. The writer of the gospel says, Jesus is the Messiah and he's God. And being God, what he says is, listen, he then quotes this from Isaiah the prophet. So this was, an, this was a, a writer of the Old Testament. And you might ask yourself, why is he... he plonked in this bit about Isaiah and then John as the fulfillment of Isaiah's property. Why has he done that? Well, if you read Isaiah chapter 40 to 55, it's a big slab of uh, prophecy in the Old Testament. And what's going on there is that, uh, is that Isaiah is saying, you know what, Israel, and this was written, you know, 800 years or so before Jesus came, or 600 years before Jesus came, saying, you know what, every longing of every human heart for security, for safety, for justice, for healing, for shalom, peace, and the restoration of all things, all these longings that are true of every human heart and are true of each of us here this morning, uh, the gospel is saying this claim that Jesus is God will show us that every human longing that's been captured in all the great literature and experiences of human life, this will be fulfilled in Jesus. That's the point of the quote from Isaiah. And what exactly does that mean? It means in this story, in this account, that Jesus is God and he's God come to earth. And the very first thing that happens when Jesus comes to earth as God to meet the longing in every human heart is, is he gives us or we are given an insight into what God is actually like. I don't know if you've ever seen this. 
and if you've ever thought about what it means. These two verses in chapter 10 and chapter 11 are astounding verses in Scripture. And uh, if we had two weeks to sit here and study this and think together, that wouldn't be enough to fully explore all the implications of these two verses. We don't have two weeks. We've got maybe about 10 minutes. So let's see what we can do. The answer to who is Jesus, according to Mark's gospel, is Jesus is God. Well, what sort of God? Well, here's we get a glimpse. We see that Jesus comes as a triune God, as a community, as a person of infinite, competent love. So this is what happens. Christianity, unlike any other religion in the world, says ultimate reality is a community of love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus goes into the, into the Jordan River to be baptized. The Jordan was a symbolic boundary between chaos and order, between the desert and the promised land, between a place of sin and death and a place of holiness and life. And he goes into the Jordan as, as symbolically reenacting the journey of humanity from chaos to order. It's a bit like, you know, you, in our day and age, you don't go into the land of milk and honey. Maybe, you know, you cross Victoria Road and you come to the land of avocado, coffee, and red wine. I don't know. Something like that, you know. You, mind you, that land is spread to all of Sydney, so the analogy doesn't really work. But he comes into this place from, from chaos to order. And as he does that, at that boundary... The heavens open, and the writer tells us what Jesus um, experienced. And what did he experience? Well, he, heaven's torn open, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, descends on him like a dove, and a voice, the Father speaks from heaven and says, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So what does that mean? Ah, oh, look, it means Relationships. Relationships characterized by love are what life is ultimately all about. And you know what? This makes sense of our experience, doesn't it? It makes sense of the fact that we all know in our heart of hearts that no matter how much stuff we have, what really makes life living is the people with whom we get to share the stuff. You can be the richest person in the world, living in the biggest house in the world, but if you're lonely and miserable and your relationships are stuffed, it's of no value to you. And you can be a person with almost no stuff, living in great poverty and hardship, but if you're embedded in a relationship, in a community of great love and care and support, your life can be immensely meaningful and rich and rewarding. Relationships are what they're all about, life is all about. And this is unlike any other religious view of the world. So in Islam, for example, God is a single being, not a trinity, not one God in three persons. And because God is a single being, it means love cannot be what life is all about in a monotheistic but non-Trinitarian worldview. Because if God is just a single being, then God can only love once he has created something else to love. So in Islam, the ultimate attribute of God is justice. In Christianity, in fact, the Bible says God is love, and God is love before he's created us. God is a community of competent love existing in perfect relationship with himself for all eternity, and he creates us not, not to love us in the first instance to complete something in himself, but he creates us so that we can be drawn in to his circle of competent love. 
So the Beatles were right. Sort of. Love is at the very heart of reality. Here's another, and, and we know that in our heart of hearts, don't we? Even if we're not religious. But it also ex- ex- explains a second thing, and that is, it explains why all our experience of, experiences of love in this world leave us um, disappointed, don't they? Let me ask you, have you ever been in a relationship with anyone who has never let you down? never disappointed you, never left you, always been there for you, perfectly attuned to your every need, and in such a way that you have never let them down, you've never disappointed them, you've, there's never been, a, apart from Annie and Matt here, looking at each other going, yeah, that's us, honey. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I can safely say I've never been in such a relationship, but I long to be. So what do we do with that disappointment? Well, we have that disappointment, that longing for a perfect relationship, because guess what? We're made to participate in that. We're made to dance in that community of perfectly competent love. And and until we experience that, everything else is going to leave us just a little bit empty, just a little bit unfulfilled, just a little bit longing for more. So... That's the God who has come into this world to connect with us in this way. And you go, that's fantastic. Life is all about love. And oh, it's so wonderful and mushy. And oh, yes. And Valentine's Day is coming up. And you're like, oh, beautiful. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Well, actually, funnily enough, this year, Valentine's Day is also Ash Wednesday, um, which I kind of like. Because look at... What happens out of this beautiful picture of this community of eternal love? What's the first thing that God does in this world? In verse 12. It's the first thing he does. He goes to war. He goes to battle. He doesn't just live in a community of perfect order and competent love. He goes out into the wilderness, into the chaos and the pain and the hardship and the mess of life to do battle for us. That's what God does. Who is Jesus? He's God, this perfect community of competent love broken into our worlds. And then the very first thing this community of competent love does is it goes into battle for us in the chaos of this world. And isn't that just the best news ever? Because here's the thing, friends. Life is hard. It's a battle. I, and until we understand that, we're never going to function well in this world. Older generations and people in other parts of the world who've grown up in contexts of significant battle, literal war, famine, disease, uh, trauma, they get it. But you don't need that to understand life's a battle. I just see so many people who, who, are, who are depressed and anxious and miserable because somewhere inside of them they have this little view that life should be easy. It should all work. That I should now be living in a community of competent love where everybody cares for me and everyone accepts me and life is fair and just and it all works. And you know what? That's sort of true, and that's sort of how it's meant to be. But when you step out into the world, what you discover is you're going out into a desert, and you're going out into a place of hardship. You're going out into a place of injustice. You're going out into a place where the strong eat the weak. 
where the powerful oppress the poor. You're going out into a place where you're part of the problem. Uh, sometimes when I prepare couples for marriage, which I get to do, and sometimes I even say this when I'm speaking at a wedding service, church full of people and a lovely bride and groom and all oh, so happy and everyone's optimistic and beautiful and I'll say to them, well, let me tell you something, people. Marriage is war. <gasps> no, no, no. Marriage is, no, it's war. It's the desert, it's chaos, it's mess, it's pain. And guess what? That's not just your spouse. The primary battle line, the chaos is not just them, it's you. It's in your heart. The war is first and foremost fought inside each and every one of our hearts. You know, you stand up, and I remember the first three months of my marriage. It was terrible. I was just horrendous. I, I, not for Margot, for me. I, you know, cause, and, and not because of her, but because of me, because I just stood up as a naive 23-year-old, going, oh, I love this beautiful woman, and I've made all these wonderful vows. And then I discovered the battle is that I'm still such a selfish git. And I'm so unable to love her the way I wanted to. And it's war, friends. And the great claim of Christianity that Mark's gospel puts before us is who is Jesus? He's God. He's God who's a community of perfect love, who's come into this world, not in some esoteric, wishy-washy, lovey-dovey kind of way, though actually all of those things aren't bad in and of themselves. He's come as a divine warrior to go into battle with us and for us to overcome chaos and injustice, to heal us by fighting with us and for us in this world. Isn't that great? We're not alone. And then he says this. This is a, he might have seen this. First thing Jesus says is, the time has come. He says, I've been out there fighting. Now what I want you all to know is the time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. The kingdom of God is present. Therefore, repent and believe the good news. Well, what on earth does that mean? The kingdom of God. He says, listen, what's happened is I've come as God. Community of competent love. I've come to go and fight in the wilderness for you and defeat evil for you. And what I'm going to make available to each person who is so inclined to take advantage of this offer, I'm going to make available to you a way of living in the world where the world is organized in exactly the way God wants it to be. says, I'm going to live. I'm going to offer, and this is what it means. It says the kingdom of God is drawn near. What is the kingdom of God? It's, it's where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And he says, you know what? It is now possible for ordinary people like you and me to experience reality in, in deep, intimate connection with God, to experience this world in exactly the way it would be if God were perfectly in control. He says, you can have that now. It's here. 
You can, you can enter it now. You don't have to live in the wilderness. You don't have to live in chaos. You don't have to live by yourself. You can start to experience this now. What does that look like? Well, all of Mark's gospel is going to show us what it looks like. And Mark 1, the rest of this chapter, is going to show us at least four things it looks like. Well, in the, when God runs the world the way God intends it to be run, uh, human hearts are drawn to God. So the first thing he does is he calls uh, he, these people, Simon and, and his brother Andrew, and he says, come follow me. So when God, you, we can enter a world where human hearts are soft towards God and where we respond to him out of love. We can enter a world uh, where demons obey him. Now, you may have a bit of a problem with demons, as in you may not believe them. Or you may have a problem with demons as in they are a very disturbing presence in your life. Either way, when God runs the world, he says, listen, you never have to live in a world where evil, malevolent forces will destroy you. You're safe from them. And all of spiritual reality comes under the gracious rule of Jesus. And you can live in that world. Or you could choose to live in a world where you're massively at the mercy of every spiritual force of evil that exists. It's your choice. He says you can live in a world where sickness bows down before God. Now, I sometimes think Simon might have had some mixed feelings uh, out of this encounter. Um, but what we see is, um, is, is right through the gospel. When Jesus speaks to sickness, it bows down before him in response. So all of physical matter, our bodies that are slowly disintegrating and decaying and giving up, All of these things in God's kingdom are completely under the control of God. And we can start to experience that now. We can live in that world now. And and the way that works out is, you know what? We're being inwardly changed and we know that one day when when our bodies actually die, this mortal body dies, our our status and presence in the kingdom of God uh, doesn't ever change. We just change from one body into the next. That's what it says. And, and we step out of a body that fails and decays and we step into a body that always is completely uh, obedient to our spirits and to Jesus. And we live in a world where exclusion is, uh, is eradicated. So uh, this man with leprosy is included. Where there's no more in-groups and out-groups. There's no more holiness or impurity. Everything is made clean and made new. And so Jesus offers you and me this invitation this morning. He says, uh, you've got to repent and believe. Well, what does that mean? Change your mind about who Jesus is, right? Answer the question, who is Jesus? He is God. And if you come to that view that he's God, and then if you say, okay, I want to follow you as God, Jesus says, you know what? You can step out of a world that doesn't work, And you can step into and learn to live into the world that works the way God wants it to work. And you can work with him in this world. And you can experience God intimately, personally, powerfully at work to put all the bits of your life together. So, what do you think? Who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? What does it mean? Well, come back next week. Belinda's going to be unpacking Mark chapter 2 and helping us think about this a little more. 
uh, and join us on this journey. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come in power into our lives. Wherever we are on our spiritual journeys, help us to, to come to a, a reasonable answer to this question of your identity and what that means for us. Help us to repent and believe this great news that we can live in your kingdom now, that it starts here. We can, we can with you experience the world working the way it's meant to work, and we can work with you to extend your rule in this world. So do this, I pray, Jesus, in your name.